Our text today is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, in a message on grief and hope as we continue in our series, Processing Grief by the Goodness of God. So if you want to make your way to that passage, I'll be there with you here in just a moment and I'll read it. In the Middle Ages, the sea route to India seemed impossible to navigate. It was often discussed in the great economic and political centers of Europe. They wondered whether there would be a route around the tip of Africa at the bottom to the land of spices in India. Many had tried and failed along the way. The tip of Africa had become known as the Cape of Storms. It was named so by a Portuguese explorer in the 1480s. The waters near the Cape, where the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans meet, can be quite treacherous. Cold currents meet warm currents and create some tumultuous waters, dangerous waves that caused many shipwrecks. The explorer Vasco da Gama decided that he was going to try to make it all the way around. He succeeded. He was the first to sail from Europe to India on that route. Once he returned, it could not be doubted again that there was hope that it could be done once again. He proved that to use the treacherous way did not necessarily mean that it was going to end in a disaster. The Cape of Storms, as a result of that, became known as the Cape of Good Hope. And it became known as the Cape of Good Hope because of the optimism that arose from the opening of the sea route to India from the east. I would say to you that life is a lot like the Cape of Storms. And grief hits us head on in it. And we find ourselves in a tumultuous situation often in life. Because of Jesus and his victory over death, hell, and the grave, life becomes more like the Cape of Good Hope. It becomes a place where we have an anticipation of all of the promises of God and the blessings to come that help us process the grief in the moment and deal with it in a way that honors God. In this series, Processing Grief by the Goodness of God, I've shared with you several stated goals. Goal number one is to help you understand what grief is. Goal number two is to help us understand how God ministers to us in our grief. Goal number three is to help us effectively process grief. And then goal number four is to help us be a blessing to others in their grief. Grief is a state of intense sadness that is typically associated with the loss of a significant person or an aspect of life. In that, it's not limited only to death or the loss of a loved one. It can include other traumatic experiences in life due to the fact that we live in a sin-fallen world and we struggle in this sin-fallen world daily and we experience the heartache and the pain that brings grief. We learned about grief and the sovereignty of God from the life of Job. Job was a man of integrity. He feared God. He turned away from evil. But you remember that Satan came before God and made the accusation that the only reason that Job was speaking and serving God as he was, 
was because God had blessed him and he had placed a hedge of protection around him. Satan made the charge that if that was taken away, that Job would curse God to his face. God gave permission for Job to be tested, but God set the boundaries of what that testing was going to be uh, in the sparing of Job's life. And Job suffered tragic and catastrophic loss in what appears to be a span of only a few hours. He lost everything he had materially. He lost all of his children. In response to his grief, he recognized the sovereignty of God. He worshiped. He did not blame God or sin in any way. And he said in Job 1 and verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Biblical hope means to trust in, to wait for, to look for, or to desire something that is better or someone that is better. It is to expect with a sense of anticipation, blessing in the future. It is especially associated with patient endurance in times of difficulty. So there's a direct connection between hope and being able to patiently endure anticipating that there's something better coming and being able to hold on in the moment when it has not yet uh, been realized in our lives. Someone said biblical hope not only desires something that is good for the future, it expects it to happen. Let's begin reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. This is what the word of God says. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Thessalonica was an ancient city of Macedon in northern Greece. It was made capital of the Roman province of Macedon and flourished because it was on a major trade route. Thessalonians is one of Paul's earliest letters written around AD 52, probably from Corinth. 1 Thessalonians 4 starts with an encouragement for the Thessalonica believers to continue in their spiritual growth. Paul commends them for their exemplary conduct but they needed to seek to do even more. Paul emphasizes the importance of purity as well as the need for believers to live peaceful, polite, and productive lives. Then he begins to discuss the subject of Christ's return. This begins with a reassurance that believers who have died prior to the return of Christ will be the first ones raised when he comes back for his people. 
Next will be those still living, all of whom will meet the Lord Jesus in the air. His main purpose in writing was to encourage and to reassure the Christians in the church. In the short time that Paul was in the Thessalonica area, he emphasized the imminent return of Jesus, and these believers took hold of what they heard. But after Paul left and continued on in his missionary journey, the people began to wonder, well, what's going to happen to believers who die before Jesus returns? They were troubled with the idea that believers might miss out on the return of the Lord. Several times in the New Testament, Paul instructs believers not to be uninformed or the word ignorant is used. So he's saying to the church, I don't want you to be uninformed, lacking the information that you need. I don't want you to be ignorant about this situation. He had said before this, don't be uninformed about God's plan for Israel. Don't be uninformed about spiritual gifts. Don't be uninformed about suffering and trials. And here he says, don't be uninformed about the return of Jesus. We find this idea here of sleep. And this idea of sleep was a typical way that ancient people would use to express the idea of death in the ancient world. Uh, There was all sorts of pessimism about death, and sleep was not spoken of as sleep that precedes an awakening or a resurrection, but rather sleep that was in effect a permanent dirt nap. That's how they were referring to sleep. A Roman poet said, suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. A Greek poet wrote, hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. Christians, however, referred to sleep and it carried the idea of rest from the labors of this life in anticipation of the eternal promises of God. The admonition for the church then is for believers not to grieve like the rest. Paul saying to the church, don't grieve like the rest. Now, who are the rest? The rest were unbelievers. And the reason that they were not to grieve like the rest is because unbelievers didn't have this hope. We grieve the loss of loved ones. That's normal. That's expected. It's a part of our experience as human beings. Jesus also experienced this in his humanity. But the grief of Christians differs from the grief of unbelievers. And Paul is urging the church to go on working quietly and waiting in hope for the return of Christ. So I want to ask and answer this question in these few moments that we have together. Why and how can we as Christians grieve with hope? First of all, we can grieve with hope because Jesus died and rose again. Look again at verse 14. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I think if we believe is better rendered since we believe. Here, we find the basis of the Christian hope. 
we find the essence of the gospel. And that is that Jesus died and rose again. In this, Christian hope is not the result of some philosophical speculation. Christian hope is not uh, founded on some type of elaborate religious myth. Christian hope rests on a sure and certain historical foundation. The death and resurrection of Jesus is a well-attested-to fact of history. We know these events took place. And just as Jesus died and rose again, through faith in Jesus, we can have assurance of our own death and then our own resurrection. Jesus in his death died in our place and he bore the penalty for our sins. He endured the worst death possible on the cross. And Jesus not only died, but he rose again. And in his resurrection, he demonstrated that death has been conquered. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20 and following says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. But now let's look a little bit more closely at this and answer the question, what happens to believers when they die? This is the most practical question of all for us. Because if Jesus, in fact, tarries his coming and we draw our last breath on this earth, and our heart beats its last beat on this earth, we ought to know what's going to happen to us when we die. And the answer, according to the Bible, is that when the believer dies, their soul goes immediately to be with God. Their body remains on the earth. The soul and the body will be reunited and made new at the resurrection. The physical body will in the future be resurrected, glorified, and reunited with the body. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 6 and following says, So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and would prefer to be away from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Paul lived with a sense of tension in his life. He believed what it was that he was preaching. He had encountered the Lord Jesus as an apostle out of due time. He had seen the glory of Christ. He had experienced the presence of God in his life. And he lived with this tension and he said, listen, It'd be better for me to go and be with the Lord, but I know that the Lord has a purpose for me now in this life. But even so, I'm longing to be with the Lord. I don't know very many believers who live with that level of strength of anticipation and hope of being in the presence of the Lord. In fact, I know a lot of believers who seem to live in fear of what's going to happen when they die. And I'm here to tell you today, you don't have to live in fear. You can live with hope. 
we win either way. If we're with the Lord, that's even better. But if the Lord chooses to leave us here for a while, we'll serve him and we'll be faithful and we'll experience his blessings here. And the Bible presents death as separation. It's separation in the sense that it's physical separation of the soul from the body. But even more intently, spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. And we don't want to be separated from God in spiritual death. And that's why we need Christ. And that's why we need to believe in his death and his resurrection for our hope. Jesus drew a distinction between believers and unbelievers in Luke chapter 16 in the account of the rich man and Lazarus. In that story, we learn of a notable wealthy man who lived extravagantly. But sadly, he died without faith and he was condemned to a place of suffering. Regularly, there was a man, a poor beggar, who laid outside the entrance of his home named Lazarus, and he ate what fell from the rich man's table. Lazarus died in faith and was welcomed into Abraham's bosom, representing the presence of God. Jesus in this taught that the place of blessing and the place of suffering are literal places. Further, he taught that when we cross that great divide, when we cross that great horizon, when we cross that river, there are no second chances. There are no do-overs. Nobody gets a mulligan on their spiritual position in this life. When we die, the only thing that will matter is whether or not our faith is in Jesus Christ and whether or not our hope is in the gospel. And our hope is in the fact that God who raised Jesus, when Jesus returns, will bring with him the people for whom he died and who died believing in him. And we can grieve with hope because Jesus died and rose again. Second, we can grieve with hope in the promise that we will always be with the Lord. Verse 17 And so we will always be with the Lord. When the Lord returns, he will raise the dead first. Then those who are alive will ascend to meet the Lord with them in the air. And the very simple promise here that is so reassuring is that after this, we will always be with the Lord. And this provides hope for the future. Because when a lost person dies... We're grieving for them because we know what the outcome is. But when a saved person dies, we're grieving for ourselves because we know that they're with the Lord. And there's a significant difference between grieving for the person who has not received the good news of Jesus Christ and grieving for the person who is certain to be now in the presence of God. And in ancient Rome, there were magnificent tombs of pagans, but sadly they had inscriptions on them that were without hope. Consider one that said, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. But there were also hopeful Christian inscriptions. One simply read, in peace. Psalm 4 and verse 8, I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, Make me dwell in safety. Heaven is a literal place 
described in the Bible. There are some 276 references to it in the New Testament. Heaven is the place that Jesus promised his disciples and us that he would go and prepare for us. John chapter 14, his disciples are stressed out. They're worried. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen when Jesus leaves us? What's going to happen when he suffers? And Jesus said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you will be also. Those are words that are filled with hope. Jesus is saying, don't be troubled about this life. Don't be troubled and worried about what's going to come next. Don't be troubled because I have a promise for you. And here's my promise. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And in that place, there's going to be plenty of room. You understand that the gospel offer is free and open to whoever will believe. It is an offer to the nations. It is the blessing of God to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's an invitation into the family of God. It is good news that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be right with God, and we can walk with God in this life. But not only can we walk with God in this life, but we can have certainty that we will live forever with him in heaven. And he's got a place for us. And in that place, there's plenty of room. And Jesus is going to come back for us And he's going to receive us unto himself. I think about John's vision in the book of Revelation. And I really think that there are a lot of professing believers who get their theology of heaven more from media and culture than they do from the Bible. There's all these weird ideas about what's going to happen and these unbiblical concepts of what's going to happen and what heaven is going to be like. So let me give you just a small description here of what heaven is going to be like. Not only is there going to be plenty of room, but according to John's vision in Revelation 21, it's going to be a place of unsurpassed beauty. I want you to think just for a moment, the most beautiful place you have ever traveled to, the most beautiful sight that you have ever seen, the most magnificent vista or horizon or creation of God that you have ever laid your eyes on. Think about it just for a moment. Whatever you just thought of pales in comparison to what the unsurpassed beauty of heaven is going to be like. Revelation 21 speaks of the city of God being of pure gold, like clear glass, with the foundations of the wall of the city being adorned with a variety of precious stones with the gates, get this, made of solid pearls and the streets, solid gold. It's going to be a place of unsurpassed beauty. Heaven is the fullness of eternal life with God. David said in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Lynn LaCroix wrote, he said, here below the saints enjoy God in a measure, but in heaven they enjoy him without measure. 
Here, we take some sips of his goodness, but in heaven, they drink deeply of it and swim in it like a boundless ocean. Here, we have our communion with God disrupted many times, but in heaven, it's going to be uninterrupted. Life with God. And it's been said that heaven is a place of no mores. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more separation, no more death, no more grief. Charles Haddon Spurgeon in his sermon, Forever with the Lord, he said, I remember a sermon on heaven by a notable preacher and the main points were as follows. Forever life, forever light, forever love. Forever peace, forever rest, forever joy. What a chain of delights. What more can a heart imagine or a hope desire? Carry those things in your mind and you will get, if you truly understand them, some idea of the blessedness which is contained in being with the Lord forever. But then here's what Spurgeon said. But still remember that these are only the fruits. These are not the root of our joy. Jesus is better than all of these. The great joy of heaven will be life in the presence of God. And I'm here to tell you today, based on the promise of the word of God, that nothing can hinder you or separate you from forever being with God in heaven if your faith is in Jesus Christ, if your hope is is in him. Like Enoch in the Old Testament, we have the privilege of walking with God. We might have fears in this life about what could happen in the future and what would happen that might separate us from the love of God. But there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God because the love of Jesus is for us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and our heavenly home awaits us. And the great reward in heaven is eternal life With God, and we can grieve with hope in the promise that we will always be with the Lord. That's the assurance. And then, third and finally, we can grieve with hope as we encourage one another with these words. Verse 18 tells us that very thing. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, the word encourage, or it might be translated as comfort. Uh, is the word exhort. Paul says that he does not want believers to be uninformed and thereby be fearful, but to be informed and thereby be comforted. We can take comfort in the truths of the previous verses. We can give comfort according to this verse. Do you notice how the two complement one another? We can take comfort for ourselves because we know the hope that we have. We know the the confidence that we can hold on to. But now Paul says, not only can you take comfort yourself personally, but you can give comfort to other people. And these words are intended to strengthen your faith and provide hope. And what God is doing is in giving us comfort, he wants us to give it to others. So I say to you today, do not waste an opportunity to be a blessing. Sometimes the experiences that we have, it's, it's almost like we hold on to them and we think that they were only for us. 
that God confined that to our lives. But when God blesses us as the people of God, it's intended for us to share it. And this is why I continually come back to this point, and I want to come back to it once again. Friends, we are not here as spectators. We are not here as consumers. We are here as the family of God. And family is engaged in life together. Family is together, meaning that we come together as the people of God. And sadly, lost people have no such hope. There was a second century letter that was written by an Egyptian lady to a grieving couple as they faced the death of their son. After explaining they had done everything they could in the circumstances, she she concluded her letter in this way. But nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. Farewell. Like, hey, you're on your own. You can't do anything about it. Do the best you can. That's not the message of the Christian gospel. The message of the Christian gospel is that we have a certain hope, and as the people of God, we comfort one another. We would never write a letter like that. We would say, hold on to this hope. Lean in to God. Lean in to the people of God because God is sovereign. He can be trusted. And you understand, for the believer, there is more We not only take heart ourselves, but we actively encourage others. And we are in a self-centered, individualistic age. Maybe more than has ever existed on the face of the planet. That might not be an exaggeration. And the gospel and the family of God are the antidote to that. And not only will there be a reunion of the living with the dead in the future, but a reunion of all of the Lord's people with him. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will also share in the comfort. So who is this that our God is in whom we place our faith and trust? According to the Bible, we are placing our faith and trust in the God of all comfort. He's the Father who comforts us. It's the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who is described in the New Testament as our comforter. Jesus is the one who comforts us as well. So in every regard, we are full of comfort. We are full of strength. We are full of hope. And the words all comfort in this passage carry with them the idea of more than just a soothing sympathy. They include the idea of help and strength. Commentator Adam Clark said, even spiritual comforts are not given for us alone. They're gifts from God, given that they might be distributed or become instruments of help for others. 
There are two perspectives on all comfort. Don't miss either one. Receiving comfort and giving comfort. Both are a part of who we are as people of hope. As it relates to receiving all comfort, put yourself in a position to be comforted by others. So why do you have to say that? I have to say it because sometimes people in their pride don't want to share their burden with other people. Our pride can keep us from sharing our needs with others. And if our pride keeps us from sharing our needs with other people, what we do is we short circuit God giving us comfort through the people of God. Do not allow the spiritual enemy to convince you that you are alone or that your situation is uncommon or that others have not experienced what you are experiencing because none of that is true. You're not alone. Doesn't matter what you're dealing with. Somebody's dealt with it. It's not uncommon to the human experience. And I just want to encourage you with the help of a gracious God who cares for you. Humble yourself and let the people of God minister to you. It should never be in a family as believers that we make it difficult for people to minister to us. Because if we do, we're not hurting anybody but ourselves. And then we're also keeping them from experiencing what God wants them to experience. So as it relates to giving all comfort uh, to one another, let me suggest some ways that we can do so as the people of God. These are practical ways of application. Uh, They're not in any particular order of importance, but I think they all are important. I've already mentioned early in the study uh, the importance of practicing a theology of presence. That phrase has been used for different applications from different perspectives throughout the years, but here's what I mean by it. Be present for people in their grief. Your presence alone shows that you care. Do not try to be a fixer. Our response often is we want to fix it. Grief cannot be fixed. It can only be processed. Give the person you are providing comfort to time and space to be able to process it as the Lord helps them through it and don't try to fix it. Be a helper. Third, help take care of practical matters as needed. And I should also say, as the okay is given by the grieving person. We've got to respect other people's space. Maybe I could say it another way that you'd understand more directly. Don't stick your nose in somewhere where you've not gotten permission to stick your nose. But as you're given that permission, be a helper. Take care of practical matters as needed. Step in and do things that maybe they're not focusing on or they don't have the time or the energy or the capacity to deal with. Then be a good listener. People process their experiences of grief through stories, memories, and life experiences. Listen with interest to those stories, memories, and life experiences. When appropriate, share your story, memories, and life experiences 
of the person who is gone or the situation as you're dealing with it, and even other examples from your own life. Commit to pray. Pray with grieving people and for grieving people. And then last, be in it for the long haul. The grieving does not stop at the amen when the funeral or the memorial service ends. It's only beginning. The grieving does not stop when the immediate storm of the crisis that a person is dealing with, if it's not death or loss of a loved one, it's only beginning once things settle and they begin to process it. Welcome grieving brothers and sisters into your life and your family if they need it and help provide further comfort. One of the best things that we can do is just faithfully keep a check on people who are going through a difficult time. I think probably one of the worst questions we can ask is, how are you doing? It might better be said, hey, I'm calling to check in on you. Call in to touch base. Or come in person and have a conversation with them, just to be with them and let them process, even in a setting like this. Knowing who God is and what he has done and what he has promised to do should fill us with hope. In the message on grief and the sovereignty of God, we learned how Job lost everything in a very short period of time. Yet he did not curse God or sin in any way. Now, for the rest of the story. The final section of Job contains what we might refer to as a storybook ending in the restoration of Job's fortunes. He ended up receiving twice the wealth he had before, plus a new family, and he was blessed more in the end than he was in the beginning, reminding us that Job was faithful to God in his adversity as well as in his prosperity. Now, if we were promoting a health and wealth gospel we would bridge from that and say, if we have loss in this life, be it people or material things, then God's going to restore for us those losses in this life. But that would not be true. Of course, God can do as he chooses because he is, after all, sovereign. But that is not often the case. In fact, I would say it is not usually the case. But the point here, and a better bridge is that what we have through faith in Jesus Christ is even better. You say, how could it be better? It's even better because we have an eternal inheritance in Christ that is multiplied many times over better, greater, deeper than whatever we experience now in this temporal existence. Ephesians 1 and verse 11 says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You say, what is my inheritance in heaven? Your inheritance in heaven is the sum total of all that God has promised. And is not the sum total of God, all that God has promised, 
Most importantly, God himself, who is the root of our joy, not just the fruit of it, is not the sum total of all that God has promised his people far greater than anything we could lose in the here and now. It is according to the truth of God's word. We got something to hold on to and to hope. If we are in Christ and we believe that Jesus died and rose again. I'd ask if you will to bow with us in prayer for just a moment. As we come toward a conclusion of the service. These are strong promises of hope from scripture. We anticipate and long for the return of Jesus. But in the meantime, we want to be faithful and we want to take our hope and our confidence from him. I ask you, first of all, is your faith in Jesus Christ? Is your hope in the good news of what he has done for you in his life, death, and resurrection? If not, you don't have this hope. It's absent from your life, and there's no other way that you can get it. It's only to be found in Christ. If you don't, but you desire it, I invite you to come to Christ. Say, how can I take that step? Through believing in God as your creator and what he has done for you through his only son and asking God to forgive you of your sins and by faith receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, telling God that you want to receive the gift of salvation and everlasting life in Christ. You can take that step right now wherever you are seated here in this room, listening online, listening to the message later, you can know Christ today. Your life could change forever. And then as the people of God, I ask you, are you living according to the comfort of what God has for you? Are you receiving it? Are you resting in it? Are you processing your grief through it? That's what God has for you. That's what he wants for you. The God of all comfort wants to comfort you. And then as the people of God, are you comforting others? Are you taking time to get involved in people's lives and being a blessing where you can? You can't do that if you're flying solo. If you're not caring and praying and getting involved with brothers and sisters in Christ. God wants you to share the comfort with which you have been comforted. God, we thank you today that we have a certain hope that you've told us about it in your word and we can take confidence in it. I pray that we'd not live and grieve as those who have no hope, but we would live and grieve as people who are filled with hope and that we would live in a way that would honor and glorify you. I pray if there are any who need to come to Christ here as we close out this service, that they'd not wait, they'd not delay. They'd see the urgency of the importance of coming to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And Lord Jesus, we long for and we await you, 
Our prayer would be even so, come Lord Jesus, we anticipate the conclusion of all things. And in the meantime, we ask that you'd find us faithful. Help us to be the people of God you want us to be. Help us to live as the family that you intended us to be. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.